No doubt most of us have had someone who believed in us and continued to push us in the right direction to produce more, or maybe even came to our rescue when we got in trouble. Especially is this true, one would hope, since we came into God's church. There are believers who are gifted by God's Spirit to perform this essential service of encouraging others to produce their best. For my wife and me, it was a deacon and wife who met us at the door the first day we attended a regular service. They were our role models and mentors for years, and for that we are eternally grateful. The Apostle Paul talks about different duties in the church. He says they're first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, miracles, gifts of healings, and then he mentions an unusual group called helps, based on a Greek word that occurs only once in our New Testament. Who they are is unknown. They may have been helpers to the apostles, aiding them in their work. Paul talks about great Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ. And later, salute Urbane, our helper in Christ. These are the kind of people that Paul urged to uphold the weak and be patient with all in his first Thessalonian letter. And our hero today was another one like John the Baptist, who said, he must increase, but I must decrease. This split sermon is a personal profile of the man who served as mentor to Paul. Saul was his Hebrew name, and on, at least on two different occasions, this man promoted Paul before the church, encouraging his best efforts, making Paul one of the greatest apostles. It is said that the most difficult instrument to play in an orchestra is second fiddle. And our hero today is a virtuoso second fiddler. The title of this split sermon is The Son of Encouragement. The Son of Encouragement. And we start today in the book of Acts, chapter 4. So let's go to the book of Acts, chapter 4, and verse 36. This is after the events of Pentecost, when the Diaspora Jews who had come to Jerusalem for the feast, and now were converted in God's church, decided to stay for a while, and there was a great need financially to support them. And the brethren began donating property, goods, to help these pilgrims who had come and had a longer stay than they expected. And we read about this man starting in chapter 4, verse 36. Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. His name actually seems to be related to Hebrew words, Barnabi, son of prophecy, and yet Luke describes it as a nickname describing his character as a son of encouragement or exhortation or consolation. He had the power and the gift of consoling and encouraging others. He's a Levite whose original name is Joseph 
or Joseph, a native of the eastern Mediterranean island of Cyprus. He's a Hellenist Jew, Jew of Greek culture, of a dispersion, now a Christian. He may have moved back to Jerusalem prior to Acts chapter 2. His conversion is unrecorded, but he seems to have been one of the earliest members of the church there at Jerusalem. And he alone is singled out as an example of generosity and encouragement. Later, he will help carry a generous gift from Antioch to Jerusalem Church in Acts 11. He becomes an apostle and a church leader, oh, even though he was not one of the original 12. And his generosity won him lifelong favor and standing in the Jerusalem church. Let's go over chapter 8, verse 1. And so now about A.D. 34, chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was consenting to his death. And this follows chapter 7 about the testimony of Stephen and um, leading up to his stoning. And then Saul, this is the man that we will later call Paul was consenting to his death. He seems to be supervising uh, this stoning. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, Entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And chapter 11 tells us many of these Christians fled up to Antioch, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. In chapter 9, we have the conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus. And I described this in a sermon some months ago. From a wolf to a sheep. Remarkable story of how Christ knocked him down. And now he becomes a member of the church. And not only becomes a member around A.D. 35, but he begins to preach. He preaches the Christ in the synagogues of Damascus. And his life is threatened. And so he flees from Damascus. And he heads back to Jerusalem. Thankfully, there was someone like Barnabas in the Jerusalem church when Saul shows up. Apparently, Barnabas had not fled during the persecution following the death of Stephen, perhaps because he had accepted standing among the uh, Jewish apostles, even the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. We don't know. But for whatever reason, he is there when Saul turns up at the headquarters church. Chapter 9 and verse 26. Acts 9, 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join her disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe he was a disciple. They feared he was trying to infiltrate the church to find out where they all were so he could round them up and put them in prison, as he had been doing even with a letter from the high priest. But Barnabas, verse 27, took him 
brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. Now here about 38 AD, Barnabas stands up for the Apostle Paul, as he will later become. Barnabas promoted Saul by befriending him, even though Saul was suspected by the entire headquarters church. In effect, Barnabas sponsors Saul. And it makes me wonder if we would have ever heard of Paul had it not been for Barnabas' endorsement. Barnabas here showed personal courage, risked his life and reputation by sponsoring Saul, the Benjamite wolf, but now a converted man. And as a result of Barnabas' credibility, the Jerusalem church accepts Paul's conversion. Imagine if they had not. And so in verse 29 of Acts uh, 9, Paul speaks boldly in the name of the Lord, preaching to the Hellenists. They try to kill him. And in verse 30, when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him to Tarsus. It seems that Saul had picked up where Stephen left off, reasoning with these people, and it led to a threat on his own life. And so the brethren take him down to the coast, Caesarea Maritima, where he no doubt catches a ship because he heads back home to Tarsus, his home city. He returns home with the encouragement of the brethren after his life is threatened. Tarsus was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem as well, 10 miles inland in modern Turkey. Saul's native city was the capital of Cilicia, a province of Asia Minor, noted for its Greek culture, literature, and its prominent university that some think Paul even may have attended at one time. He goes back home. Now let's go over to chapter 11. Things continue to develop as Christ's commission to take the gospel to the whole world is being fulfilled by his church. Chapter 11, Acts 11, and verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose after Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, the King James here says, Grecians. They, they were Gentiles, if that's the case, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And so a church sprouts up in this city 300 miles north. What does the church do now? And so in verse 22, news of these things came back to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. And notice the next two words. He encouraged. He encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. 
For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the church. So here about 300 miles north of Jerusalem is the third largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria. Cosmopolitan with people of all cultures and ethnic backgrounds, including people from Persia, India, and China. An ideal spot to preach the gospel. And so these new converts had accepted this good news and made a response. Antioch was culturally and religiously diverse. And so people were more open to the truth of God than in other locations. And now it has a church largely of Gentiles. And some of the Jerusalem brethren had fled there upon the outbreak of Acts 11. They had shared this truth and now there was a church forming and it needs leadership. And so the apostles had such confidence in Barnabas that they entrust him to travel to Antioch to work with these new people. Again, he serves as an encourager. Verse 23, he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the eternal. He was the right man for the right job. And he went there not to boss people around, but rather on a fact-finding mission of listening and teaching. And when he saw the grace of God among them, he rejoiced. This man who is full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and now there are brand new people that he's going to serve. Barnabas pastors this new church, it seems, but there was so much work to be done that he decides he needs the assistance of the one he had sponsored in Jerusalem. He knows him very well. And his chief concern is not his own power base, but two things, the needs of the people and the furtherance of the gospel. And he probably recognized that his friend Saul had a sharper mind, perhaps more skilled in debate, and Barnabas needs him. He needs him in Antioch. And so... We read in chapter 11, verse 25, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. This is now around 39, 40 A.D., Barnabas recognized in Saul skills that he didn't have. And he saw his own ministry as that which would complement the ministry of others instead of competing with them. He wanted Saul as a teammate so they would work together. And the result was sizable growth, sizable growth in that city. And this experience, no doubt, did much to shape Saul's teachings that he will write in his 14 epistles. And now verse 27. And in those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren. 
dwelling in Judea. And this they also did, and sent it by the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Paul. And Barnabas here takes the lead. He's the lead of this team. At this point, around 40 A.D., Barnabas, who had given his own property, sold it, given it to the apostles, now gathers up this gift from the Antioch church to give the suffering brethren in Jerusalem. And they entrust it with Barnabas and Saul. And so Barnabas helped organize this collection for famine relief, and he and Saul then head south to deliver the goods. Chapter 12, verse 25. Chapter 12, verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now we have a threesome. We have a third person on this team. And who was this John Mark? Well, Paul in his later Colossian letter tells us Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. The cousin of Barnabas. Chapter 13 and verse 1. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up, Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Barnabas is named first as a prophet and a teacher, indicating he was a leader of this new group here at Antioch. And so God inspired these men be ordained as apostles, which relates to the word here, they sent them away in verse 3. Around 46, 47 A.D., and they are both ordained as apostles. But notice the order, Barnabas and Saul. At this point, he still has the preeminence over Saul. Chapter 13, verse 4. And so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, the seaport nearest Antioch. This is Syrian Antioch, by the way. And from there they sailed to Cyprus, the eastern Mediterranean island, the home of Barnabas. And when they arrived in Salamis, the port city on Cyprus, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their assistant. So John is working with them, assisting them in the many duties. He's a young man. And then verse 6, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. An inscription was discovered at Pisidian Antioch years ago, mentioning this Sergius Paulus as proconsul. And this man called for Barnabas and Saul. See the order? And he sought to hear the word of the Lord. So he wanted to discover the truth, to learn from these men. Well, of course, Satan doesn't want that. And then Elamus, the sorcerer, verse 8, for his, so his name is translated, withstood him, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And then Saul, 
who is also called Paul. Here's where we are told of a name change for Paul. From this point on, he will be Paul, except when he talks about his conversion later in this same book. So Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and he said, O fool of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? But now notice who speaks. Who's the spokesman here? Well, it's none other than our Paul. He's taking over or assuming or receiving, perhaps, the leadership of the team from Barnabas. And I suspect because Barnabas realized Paul had what it took from here on to lead this team as they traveled throughout that part of the Roman world. Because look down at verse 13. Now when Paul and his party, Paul and his party, set sail from Paphos, they came to Pergam, Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they had departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and sat down. Paul and party. Barnabas recedes to begin to play second fiddle, and I think he did it gladly. We find no competition between these men, no jealousy from Barnabas's part. From here on, from now on, most times it'll be Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. There are a few exceptions, as we'll see. Now this is another Antioch in verse 14. This is Antioch in Pisidia, modern-day Turkey. But John Mark decides to go home. Many suggestions have been offered as to why he left. He was young, homesick. He reacted negatively to interacting with Gentiles. He wasn't happy with Paul's taking over the leadership of the team. He got seasick on the way. He was afraid. Too hard. We don't know. We don't know for sure. But he goes home. This will be a source of trouble later, as we will see. So now let's go down to chapter 13 and verse 42. 1342. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached in the next Sabbath. Here we are at Antioch in Pisidia, modern day Turkey. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed, notice, Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And on our next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of the Lord. Notice the change in order. And I suspect Barnabas rejoiced in Saul's new leadership role. That he saw qualities in Saul that were important for the leadership at this time and in this circumstance. Verse 45 now. <clears throat> 45, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. And then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Say to the Jew first, but then to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. And here again, 
Paul and Barnabas. That's the order. Now, verse 49. 49. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women. And the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them, came to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So here we have now in verses 49 to 52, again, opposition mounting against the church. The Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and chief men of the city. And so persecution is growing against this new movement that's affecting the entire uh, Roman world and that, uh, that part of the country. So in chapter 14, now in verse 8, And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet. So they move on to Lystra, nearby town from Antioch and of uh, Pisidia. He's without strength in his feet, and he's sitting there crippled from his mother's womb. Never walked. He heard Paul speak, and Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw that Paul had done what he had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Now this seems to relate to a legend in that part of the world where the gods had visited them and were not treated with respect, and so the gods retaliated. And when the people, local people, see this miracle work by Paul, they did not want to take a chance, and so they're about to prepare a sacrifice for them. But notice they call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the spokesman. Lystra must have noted a certain dignity in Barnabas. In fact, busts of Zeus, busts of Zeus, the supreme ruling Greek god of Mount Olympus, depict a middle-aged, physically powerful, muscular man who is regal and commanding, and perhaps Barnabas fit that bill and was more imposing than Paul. And Paul was the spokesman after all, so they call him Hermes. Chapter 14, verse 13 now. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. And when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men and brethren, what are you doing? We're men with the same nature like you. They were appalled, and they tear their garments, which was a, a Jewish expression of distress and grief. But I want you to notice in verse 14 again, that Barnabas is called an apostle along with Paul. He shared that same office. Let's go down to verse 19. Verse 19. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. 
However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went out of the city. And next day departed, he departed with Barnabas to Derby. Saul, Paul, is stoned, and yet he travels on. He goes back, even actually later, where he was stoned. And now verse 24. 24. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word of Perga, they came down to Antioch, Atalia, rather. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done to them. This is Antioch of Syria, kind of like a regional office we might call it today. And they tell the brethren all that had happened, how God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Now what is brewing right about this time is a major controversy in the church over circumcision. How do Gentiles come into the faith? Do they first have to go through circumcision, become a Jew before they become a Christian? In fact, Paul recounts in the Galatian letter that Peter is caught up in a hypocritic action involving these. And he, he, he laments, he says, even Barnabas was carried away with this controversy. But though Barnabas seems to have this chink in his armor, he rebounds. Because in chapter 15 now, starting in verse 1, we find that he and Paul are sent down to Jerusalem to find out what do the apostles say. Acts 15, 1. Certain men came down from Judea, taught the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And therefore Paul and Barnabas, when they had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. This is A.D. 49.50. And Barnabas and Paul stand up for the truth of what God had been doing among them in welcoming Gentiles into the church without bodily circumcision. He had overcome his hesitation of associating with them, obviously, by this point. So verse 12, chapter 15, verse 12, And all the multitude kept silent, down in Jerusalem, as they speak before the Jerusalem church and the remaining apostles, all the multitude listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Now, notice the reversed order. Now it's Barnabas and Paul again. Why? Was Paul too weak and bruised yet from his stoning? that Barnabas had again assumed leadership of the team? Or was it because Barnabas had such an outstanding reputation among the Jerusalem apostles? We don't know for sure. But now down to verse 22. And so the apostles debate this issue and decide to write a letter. Chapter 15, verse 22. They please the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Perhaps Paul was recovered now. Namely, Judas, 
who was also called Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. Paul and Barnabas. They're heading back to Antioch, Syrian Antioch, where Paul will again be able to carry on the leadership of this team. Verse 23, and so they wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, the brethren, to the brethren who were of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some went out from among us, troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we have no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled one accord, to send chosen men to you with our notice, our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so they go on and talk about the team coming with this letter. And the order again shows the respect the Jerusalem church had for Barnabas. He was a lovable guy. And it's evident as we read words like this. And now down to verse 35. 35. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So they went back to Syrian Antioch and they preached there and with many others also. 36 now. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we've preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. See Paul's leadership. And Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. So Barnabas took Mark, sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commissioned or commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is a regrettable story, but it produces two teams now instead of one. And so the work has a chance to grow even more rapidly. It was a contention. I suspect Barnabas thought that his young cousin, John Mark, should be given another chance. And that he thought, with his encouragement and guidance, he could reclaim this young Mark. Paul just insists he didn't want to take a chance <clears throat> with Mark's seeming lack of dedication. Perhaps Paul was too stern. Perhaps Barnabas was too lenient. We don't know. We don't read of prayer involved, seeking God's will in the matter, leads to this regrettable separation. But that's not the end of the story. Because John Mark's departure from the team here did not disqualify him fully for all time. In fact, Peter will later refer to Mark in his first epistle as Mark, my son, years later. And even Paul, when he's in prison, awaiting execution in his last letter, writes, only Luke was with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for the ministry. The late 60s, many years later, 
It appears that the years have softened Paul's firm stance against Mark, and he again had accepted him as a fellow worker. I suspect it was because Mark was reclaimed by the work of his cousin Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He reclaimed this man, and this Mark went on to serve two different apostles, Peter and then Mark. I should say uh, Paul and then Peter. And then God uses Mark to write our second gospel. The man had been reclaimed. After this incident, Barnabas disappears from the book of Acts. And yet, years later, he's referred to by his old teammate, Paul. Around the spring of A.D. 56, Paul explains that he and Barnabas worked to support their ministry so they would not be a burden financially to the Corinthian church. He speaks affectionately of his old friend. So though their partnership had come to an end, it did not end their friendship and respect for each other. But from that time on, Barnabas passes from the story. We have here a remarkable individual who can serve to us as a model for mentoring. That's the word that's used today, mentoring. Barnabas was one of the great men of the early church, an apostle, and a worthy peer of Paul, but he's been overshadowed by Paul. But yet Barnabas was a man of humility and faith, full of the Holy Spirit, we read, a gracious personality, very big-hearted and generous towards people. He befriended Saul when Saul was suspected by the Jerusalem church and he first shows up. He believed in Saul before anyone else did. And he courageously spoke in his defense and endorsed him before the church leadership. He tells the apostles about Saul's conversion. And it was Barnabas' reputation and integrity that carried the day. You see, leaders sing the praises of people to others based on their own credibility. And Barnabas had credibility in Jerusalem. Barnabas recruited the forgotten Saul from his hometown in Tarsus to help him stabilize this new group of multi-ethnic believers in Antioch. A year-long project. And so, again, Barnabas empowered Paul to reach his potential. Not only do leaders believe in others, they take steps to help them become the leaders that they have the potential to become. And that's what Barnabas did for Paul. He invested in Paul, requiring energy, time, and risk. But it was worth the price. In Antioch, it's Barnabas who organizes this team of leaders before setting out on that first apostolic tour with Paul. And then during that tour, he continually is nudging Paul forward in leadership of the team. He and Paul will go to Jerusalem to defend these new Gentile believers over the circumcision issue. And yet, Barnabas also was willing to stand up to his old friend, when Paul had a negative opinion of John Mark. And it was Barnabas 
who is used as the encourager to reclaim Mark when he could have been lost to history. He gave Mark a second chance, which turned out well. And even Paul later acknowledged Mark's contribution to the work. Barnabas serves as a supreme model on how to mentor young believers and workers. He worked with people that others did not want in their company, like when Saul first shows up in Jerusalem. He listened to them respectfully, and he welcomed them warmly. And that won these new believers, new workers over and trained them to become effective leaders in God's church. Barnabas was an encourager of those who were friendless and needy, like Saul when he shows up in Jerusalem, or for those who had failed, like John Mark. He was eager to think the best of others. Each of us has the choice to build up and promote others rather than compete by exalting ourselves. Barnabas chose to be a mentor and a promoter, a facilitator, and an encourager. And even today, he is our mentor of Christian leadership that edifies and strengthens those who will eventually supersede our own efforts. Each of us can be an encourager or consoler to those who will eventually surpass us in ability and accomplishment. I'd like you to consider someone that you may wish to mentor, like Barnabas. And so I ask, for whom will you serve as the son of encouragement?